Hey, good morning, good morning. While you're finding your seats here, uh, a couple quick announcements just want to bring to your attention. Last Sunday, we had a fun fest at our house. If you missed it, you missed a good time. We were cleaning up afterwards, millions of little water bloom pieces. And we noticed as we were cleaning up that several people left the party with no shoes on. <laughs> now, how is that? We didn't even serve alcohol here. I mean, how do you leave a party with no shoes and not realize it? Anyways, so if you're missing your shoes, we know where they're at. There's another fun fest at the Listers coming up. If you got one of these sheets on the way in, there's also going to be more on the tables. There's another fun fest. It's going to be kind of our end of the summer blast on, on August 18th. want to let you know about that. So we are, we're almost to the end of the Sermon on the Mount here. We've only got one week after this. I say this to say we've spent seven months becoming experts in Christ's teaching of moral law. You are moral geniuses whether you know it or not. Let's put this in perspective. In our world, a world of confusion, a world that says you cannot have moral certainty, a world that declares there is no absolutes when it comes to Morality or religion. You, church, you know God's will on marriage, anger, truth, religion, prayer, giving, fasting. I could go on and on here. You know God's will for sure. With great clarity. We can say that we actually know God's will in all of these areas. In fact, we can say that there are moral absolutes. Not because we believe them, but because Christ taught them. Based on him. Through Christ, we know what God thinks and wants. Now, we're called to be the light of the world. Light in a dark place. We're called to be salt. So that, so that people will taste us and they'll taste freedom and joy and salvation and worship what it tastes like in us. But now, more than ever, there's, there's a subtle temptation. You see, because because we know some things, absolutely, absolutely we know God's will on some things, there's a temptation to think that we know absolutely everything. And because we understand God's moral standard, we can be tempted to think that we are God's moral standard. We're tempted to judge. So for 2,000 years, Christians have been finding creative ways to sit in judgment on other people. We could go anywhere. We could go to these massive things that happen in history, but I'd rather, rather go back on, when I was just a little kid, we went on vacation. We're driving down to Florida from Ohio, and my parents, godly parents, love the people of God, love the word of God, love church. So we're driving down there. We're just in whatever. We're wearing our shorts. We're heading down on vacation, but it's Sunday morning, 10 o'clock. My dad says, here's a little town. We're just going to pull in. We're going to find a group of believers and we're going to join them. We're just going to worship with them because that's what people of God do. We'll encourage them. We'll be encouraged by them. We pull in. We go in. And remember, we're on vacation. I've like, like got a backwards little hat and little flip-flops and shorts on. Walk in there, sit in the back, and everyone else looks very prim and proper. And most of them are over the age of 50. And we sing our songs, we know the old hymns, and then the preacher gets up, and do you know what the preacher's sermon was that day? He preached against wearing shorts in worship, and I'm not making this up. That's what he preached for 45 minutes. I don't even know if he had any biblical text, he just ranted that people would dare wear shorts in worship.
I'm like, really? <laughs> really? The glorious gospel of Jesus Christ is that you are saved from looking at my legs? No! This is insane, and this is ridiculous. In fact, Jesus is going to make this whole thing. He's going to show us how ridiculous judgmentalism, being judgmental, is. You know, from the outside, being judgmental looks absolutely ridiculous. But from the inside, people are completely oblivious to it. Let's look at the text. We're in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 12, and we're going to stick primarily in 1 through 8 today. This first section here, Jesus is going to warn us against being judgmental. But I want you to listen to me. He's going to then walk us through how to lovingly and gently apply God's moral code, His absolutes, to ourselves and to others. Let's watch this. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured against you. Now this, of course, you've all heard this. This is probably the most quoted scripture in the world, especially by non-Christians. Everyone knows this. Don't judge or you'll be judged. But I'm afraid that not everyone knows what this actually means. So if we were to just drop everything, we all go for a little jog out in Valley Forge. We're on the trails next to somebody and we're like, hey, you know, while we're jogging, let's talk about theology. What do you think Jesus meant when he said, do not judge or you will be judged? Now, if you push through that and you start digging through the language there, you will find that most people, let's just say generally, people generally think that Jesus is affirming the American ideal the modern American ideal of tolerance. They think that Jesus is saying this. Jesus is telling us to never evaluate another person's morality. You know, in America, morality is a personal, private thing. How dare you judge anyone else's? It's in their own heart. So you have no right to evaluate what is good or bad for someone else, except for what is good or bad for you. Therefore, do not judge means equals do not make a moral evaluation. Do not evaluate a person's beliefs or behavior. So here's the question. Do you follow Buddha or Jesus? I can't judge that. You and your own heart can make the decision that's good for you. And, and sex outside of marriage, divorce, materialism, gossip. You know, no one can judge you for that. It's right or wrong to you. Of course, the problem with this, it's going to be right after this, just not five verses later, Jesus is going to call people dogs and pigs. And then ten verses later, he's going to say, watch out for false prophets. And how do you know who a false prophet is? You will know them by their fruit. That we should constantly be evaluating what people are teaching, what they believe, and how they behave. That there is a moral standard and we should make moral evaluations everywhere. This isn't just Jesus. You guys just went through the, through, through the book of Proverbs, right? The whole book of Proverbs is about making moral evaluations. Is it wise or is it foolish? So let's, let's cover a few of these that the Proverbs clearly cover. You should not trust a liar. That's foolish. You shouldn't go into business with a lazy person. You shouldn't share a secret with a gossip. And parents, you shouldn't let a pedophile watch your child. This is not judgmental. This is wise. 
Do you understand? There is wisdom. We have to apply this. We have to judge beliefs and behaviors. Whether you want to admit it or not, whether our world wants to admit it or not, everyone functionally does this anyways. We just have categories of ones we do judge and ones we don't judge. So, 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 when someone walks into a movie theater and kills dozens of people, we don't say, well, that would be bad for me, but it might have been good for him. That might be okay for him. No! Obama was right to call it evil. It is evil behavior. What he did is morally repulsive. So huge segments of Hinduism that say, if you have a physical disability, that's because in a previous life you were bad. And so you can judge people who are disabled because they are actually lesser people because the way they behaved in a previous life. That is evil beliefs. We should judge it. So if it doesn't mean that we don't make moral evaluations, what does Jesus mean by do not judge? Well, there's another definition of judging that we find in the scriptures. There's a judgment that goes beyond evaluating a person's behavior or beliefs, and it goes to condemning the person. Do you hear the difference? Judging their beliefs and behaviors versus condemning the person. And when it goes from there's a problem with your behavior to there's a problem and you're it. This kind of judgment is what we call being judgmental. So you assume a position of moral superiority and then you hurl verbal bombs down at them. How dare you wear shorts in church? In Romans 14, the Apostle Paul, listen to the language he used. He calls this passing judgment. But then he clarifies. He says, when you do that, you look down on him. And when you do that, you condemn the man. Judgmentalism is looking down on him, is condemning him. That's what Jesus and the Apostle Paul are railing against here. Don't do that. God alone is in a position to condemn. God alone is in a position to make this kind of judgment. So here, though, we get to this finely sliced pie. Okay, make moral evaluations all the time. You should be judging behaviors and beliefs. You should. You should know what's right and judge it. But do not judge the people. How do we do that? That gets really sticky in there. There's a lot of like, wouldn't it be easy to just fall into being judgmental in that? We need an example. So you go to John chapter 4. Jesus shows up at a well. And he meets a rather sketchy woman there. She is a pintuple. I'm not even sure if that's the word. Divorcee. She's been divorced five times. Is that a word? Does anyone know? I like it though. And she's shacking up with a guy. And Jesus makes sure that she knows that he knows. He knows her behavior is wrong. And he does not cast her away like so many other men have in her life though. He loves her and says, I've come to bring you living water. You just ask me. And she says, well, I see a religious type here. I have a religious question for you. You see, she's Samaritan. They had different scriptures, different religious practices. What do you think about my religion, huh, you Jew? What do you think about it? And what does Jesus say? Does he judge her religion? He does. He says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yep, you're wrong on that too. Your worship is an act of ignorance. So he's judged her beliefs. He's judged her behaviors. But he does not condemn her. 
He did not come to that well to condemn her. He came to that well to give her life. He came to that well because he loves her. And what was her response there? Listen to this. She says, I know that the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. I've been waiting for answers, for real answers to these questions my whole life. I know that my life is messed up and I know that I need someone to save me. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. You know, you thought you were looking for me, but I'm looking for you. He didn't show up in the world to condemn her, though he judges her behavior and he judges her beliefs. He came to give her life. To say, I've been looking for you. I've come here just for you, not for water, not for anything else. I came here because I love you, because you're beautiful to me. Underneath all those messed up, broken details of your life, all those half-truths and all that sin, Jesus said, it's the person that I love. Christ is the one person in history who has the right to condemn us for our sins, and he does not do it. And this is the way it is for all of us who've truly experienced Christ. You meet him, and if you really meet Christ, you immediately feel grossly flawed, sinful, broken, and unworthy. Go away from me, Lord. I'm an unworthy man, Peter says. But, 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 he knows your sin. He knows you're broken. But he didn't come here to condemn you to give you life. One chapter prior to this story with a woman at the well, that's John chapter 4. There's John 3. You might have heard of John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only, one and only son, whoever should believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. And right after that, it says John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus did not come to condemn the world. So followers of Christ, God is not sending you out to condemn the world, but to share the message that they can be saved, that they can know God, that they can be loved in spite of all the brokenness and sin that they have in their lives. In fact, if you condemn others, you will be condemned. Look at this. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And the measure you use, it will be measured to you. What is Jesus saying here? A judgmental person does not believe that they are sinful and broken and saved by grace. Did, did you hear that? A judgmental person does not believe the gospel. And why does Jesus think that? Why do we know that? Because how could you possibly believe that you are a sinner who the only reason you even stand or suck air right now is because of the grace of God. How could you believe that about yourself and then go out and condemn other people? It doesn't make any sense. It blows the mind. How could you receive that kind of love and unconditional grace and forgiveness and then show such wrath and anger and be so unmerciful to other people? Jesus will now give us a famous example of what this looks like practically. The story of the blind ophthalmologist. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? Let, let's stop right here. Let, let's, let's reflect on this. Can you picture this? Okay, we're in ancient Palestine. And your brother is there with you if you have a brother, your friend. And they get a big thing in their eye. Now you can imagine, if you get something in your eye, it hurts. You're like crying. It's painful. It's, it's uncomfortable. You, you can't see where you're going. And back then, they were short on mirrors and visine. 
So you couldn't just say, hey, fix it yourself. No. If you see your brother in that condition, they're in pain, they're uncomfortable, they're stumbling everywhere they go, they need help. So what's the loving thing to do? Well, you need to drop everything and you need to help your brother. But how do you do that? How do you get something out of someone's eye? Have you ever, the parents might have done this for their children before. Do you break out like a crowbar or a stick and say, here, let me fix that for you? No. Not even tweezers here. We're talking like a tissue or water rinse, right? You do it very gently and very carefully. That's the loving thing to do. But Jesus says, if you go and try and help someone, if you've got a two-by-four sticking out of your eyeball, this is ridiculous. One, that means you can't see a thing. And two, you're stumbling. Now you're going to try and help them? You're going to cause more damage than good. Get away from them. And go clear out your own eye first. You get it? Pretty simple. So, so let's apply this. If your brother gets a sinful belief or behavior, something, a, a lack of faithfulness, there's an addiction or a sin or something that gets wedged into their heart and they're in great discomfort and they're stumbling on the way of Christ. They, they can't walk anymore. They don't know where they're going. If you see this, then what's the loving thing to do? Should you just tell them, that's okay, we all struggle with different things? No! If you see that, you should help them very gently and very carefully. But before you do that, first you have to deal with the plank in your own eye. Jesus will say in verse 3, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention? That, that pay no attention translation right there can sometimes be referred to as just translated as, why do you not reflect why do you not examine? Why do you not scrutinize? Why do you not think of your own sins first? And this has a long tradition in Scripture. You'll hear throughout the psalmist say, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord. Lamentations. Jeremiah says this. Let us examine our ways and test them. And let us return to the Lord. And when we examine ourselves and we see our own heart as it is, chances are you're going to find a plank in your eye. Now, why would Jesus say a plank? Isn't this ridiculous? It's like majorly overstated. But think about it. If you Let's say you have just a speck in your eye. Let's say just a little speck of dirt. What does it look like to you from your perspective? This isn't just ridiculous. This is perspective. When you have a, a little speck in your eye, it covers your whole eyesight. It looks to you like a plank. Now, I think this is one of the points here. That if you know your own heart and your own sin, you will say with the Apostle Paul, I am the worst of all sinners. That if you take a little bit of time to reflect on your own sin, famous pastor, scholar, theologian named Jonathan Edwards, he wrote a resolution on how to deal with this, these planks in the eye. He says this, Resolved, to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I. And as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others. And that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only an occasion of my confessing my own sins and misery to God. This is a man who says, I want to deal with the plank in my eye. And then I'll be able to gently serve those around me. There's another 
thing going on with the plank. Another implication of, of a giant plank sticking out of your eye. It's ridiculous. It's as ridiculous as walking into a church and hearing an entire sermon about not wearing shorts. This is ridiculous. Because there is a ridiculous possibility that we might be able to see the tiniest sins in other people and completely miss giant sins in our own life. Second Samuel 11 and 12. The great King David. He's at the height of his kingdom. It's beautiful, gorgeous. He has everything. And he's on top of his roof one evening. And his troops are out of the front lines winning new territories, defeating enemies for him. And he's relaxing on the top of the roof of his palace. And he sees a beautiful woman in the distance bathing. Now, never mind the fact that he has tons of wives and concubines. Never mind the fact that this is another man's wife. He takes his servant and says, hey, who is that? Go check her out for me. And he finds out, oh, his servant says, oh, this is Uriah's wife. You know, Uriah, that guy who's risking his life for you right now on the front lines, it's his wife. David says, bring her to me. And he sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. And he's like, oh, we got to cover this up. I'm a king here. Can't let people know what I'm doing. So what does he do? He sends out orders to have Uriah sent to the front line, to the thickest part of the battle, and have the other men pull back. It's a death sentence. And it works! And David is living, everything worked out great, right? Now he has this woman that he wanted, he's got the man killed, he's covered up all of his own problems, he's perfect. And he's sitting there one day and Nathan the prophet comes to him and says, King, we have a really big problem in our kingdom and I want you to deal with this. You see, there's this, this town out there on, in our kingdom and there's a rich man. This rich man has so many sheep you can hardly imagine and so many cattle and there's a poor man. And he has nothing. But he took what he did have and he bought one ewe lamb. One little lamb. And he loved that lamb. He treated it like a pet. It would eat at their table and it would sleep with them and he would take care of it. And he named it. I mean, it went everywhere with him. And then the rich man had a guest come in town. He didn't want to kill any of his sheep. So he stole the lamb from the poor man, slaughtered it and served it as dinner to his guests. Let me read you David's response to this issue of sheep. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, this man who did this deserves to die. David had been a shepherd growing up. He knows the value of sheep. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. David is completely blind to the issue of adultery and murder. Oh, but sheep, now that's an important one to him. Completely insensitive to his own sins. And yet over the issue of stealing and killing a sheep is oh, like a capital crime. Of course, Nathan says his famous words, you are the man, you are the man. And isn't that the way we are? We can be completely oblivious to our grotesque lust and hatred, and greed, and selfishness, and lack of faith within our own hearts, and yet hold up a magnifying glass to the sins of other people. When we examine ourselves, and we see our sin for what it is, and we're able to deal with our sins by grace, we'll see not only 
the grace of God, but we'll also see that not all people are equally eager to hear this gospel message and repent and believe. Do not give to dogs what is sacred and do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Uh, this is this is a sharp turn. Do not judge people, those dogs and pigs. This is strong language. In the ancient Jewish world, a dog and a pig is the proverbial filthy animal. L- let me read you one um, one passage. It says, this is what Peter says. The Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit. And a sow that is washed goes back to wallow in her mud. Now, isn't that just dirty? <laughs> that is just sick. Dogs vomit. What? And that's the way they viewed them. But it wasn't just a matter of being filthy animals. They were animals that were driven by their base desires, driven by their appetites. They didn't think their stomach thought for them. Their stomach is their God. So do not give dogs what is sacred. Let me let me give you this image. It's the image of a priest of God who's just sacrificed a calf to God in his temple. And he cuts off the best cut of meat, the, the 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 perfectly grilled filet mignon. Okay, are you feeling it? Are you salivating yet? It's perfect, and that meat is designed to only be eaten by the priest as an act of worship to God. And he takes it, throws it to some dogs on the street. No, dogs don't appreciate filet mignon. They don't know the difference between hamburger and filet, between round steak and, and, and prime aged beef. It's a dog. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. This is the image of a farmer coming out with a feed can. Any of you guys grew up in a farming setting? You see this? They come out with a feed can. They start shaking it. And then what do they say? Sue-wee! That's how you call pigs. I'm not making this up. And then you will see this mad dash, these 350, 400-pound hogs coming over the hill. They're flying out. They are ready for their food. And the farmer's all excited. He's got the feed can there. These hogs are, are pounding down on him. And he pours out some pearls in the trough. What do those pigs do? They take one bite, choke, and say, what is this? I came for food, and you give me pearls. Have you ever seen an angry hog? I have. And they can tear you to pieces, my friends. That's the image. Now, what is this all about? Dogs and hogs and sacred meat and pearls. The the earliest Christians understood the sacred meat to be the body of Christ broken for you. What we would know is primarily as communion. So a dog to them, they interpret it as someone who comes to the communion table looking to get their appetite filled and has no idea that it's an act of worship. No idea that it's a statement of faith in the precious death of Jesus Christ. Now, whether or not it specifically applies to communion, I don't know. I wouldn't stake. But it clearly, that sacrificial meat was always designed to be eaten as an act of worship. It clearly, the principle stands... This is the worship of our God. That is our sacred meat. Some people are not yet able to appreciate the worship of our God. Do you hear that? 
It doesn't make sense to them. They do not have an appetite for it. They can't distinguish it, worship music, from the concert they went to. If it's not entertaining and it doesn't directly meet my felt need, why would I want to worship an unseen God? This is how a dog thinks. Worship is sacred meat that only a priest of God can fully appreciate. The pearl, there can be little question. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus will pull the same image out. The pearl is the message of the kingdom of God. What we call the gospel. The king has come to save you. The same message that's used in Matthew 13, Jesus says it's the pearl of great price. A merchant who's looking for fine pearls goes out and he finds one worth everything. So what does he do? He goes, he sells all that he has and he buys it. When you read it in the other gospels, it says he sells all that he has and in his great joy, he buys it. Because he's seen that pearl, he knows that it is worth everything. But if you give the same pearl, the gospel, to a pig, he will ask, how does that meet my needs? What's in it for me? If I accept this gospel, will it make my marriage more successful? Will it help me become a better parent? Will it grow my business? Will it solve my finances? Will it give me self-confidence? A pig does not see the value in pearls. Pigs only want their immediate needs met. So please note here, though, this is not a message for pigs and dogs. This is a message for how you care for pigs and dogs. You don't feed a dog flamingon and you don't you don't give pigs pearls. Let me unpack this. We must respect that different people are in different places in their relationship with God. That no matter how beautiful and how satisfying the, the gospel is to you. No matter how much you, you might weep and be moved in your worship of a holy God. Not everyone's on the same page. I'm not saying that you shouldn't share the gospel. You should I'm not saying that you shouldn't invite people to worship. You should. In fact, all of you should do that more often. What I am saying is that you should not try to force people to appreciate the gospel or worship authentically the way we do. No one has ever been nagged into the kingdom of heaven. Ever. No one has ever been coerced to authentically worship God. You can force someone to go through the moves. You can force someone to come to church. You can force someone to hear the gospel. But you cannot bring them into the kingdom of God or plant authentic worship in their heart. When I was 17, I grew up in church. I was generally a good kid. I, I believed the gospel, though it was all very partial for me. And when I was 17, a, a guy at our church, Joe, Joe Fansler, he uh, he came over and said, Paul, I know that you read your Bible and stuff. I want to give this to you. This is a great worship tape. For you kids, we used to put our music on little cassette tapes. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. Uh, I'll listen to this. And on the cover was this picture. <laughs> I mean, the worst, like, white man's fro I'd ever seen. And I'm like, okay, great worship CD. So I put the tape in my boombox, huh? I press play and, and give him a taste of what I heard. <laughs> okay, enough. I can't take it anymore. I listened to about one song and I hated it. 
I mean, I hated it. I could not stop making fun of the tape or the man who gave it to me. I just couldn't. I just thought that's the cheesiest, worst, folksy Christian music I've ever heard in my whole life. Three years later, I'm working at a summer camp in Western PA, summer's best two weeks. Three years later, I'm a different person. And it's not that I didn't believe the gospel back then, but God has done, like, I had tasted the love of God and felt the love of God and loved God in a way that changed my thoughts and the way I spoke and the way I worshipped and the way I saw people and, and it changed everything in me. And so I, I'm out there and we have one off night and there's a, a, a co-counselor, another camp counselor out there with me. He's like, Paul, I really want to share this great worship CD with you. <laughs> and he breaks out Keith Green and he tells me the story of Keith Green about this man whose passion was just unbridled passion for God and how he, he did everything he could in his short years to see Jesus Christ glorified all over our earth. And he plays that same cheesy, folksy CD for me. And you know what happened that time, though? I heard the words and I worshipped my God. In spite of Keith Green. <laughs> I was moved. I actually afterwards voluntarily listened to the CD. I still own the CD. I'm not saying that loving God will make you enjoy really bad 70s Christian music. But I found that as I grow in my relationship with God, as I follow Christ further along the road, as I know and believe the gospel more and more, that I am able to taste that sacred meat of worship and appreciate it no matter what form it comes in. Even in Keith Green. Enjoying sacred meat has nothing to do with the style has everything to do with my heart. Do I appreciate and value this sacred gift? At 17, I did not. I was a pig. I was a dog. And we need to respect that people are at different places in their relationship with God. To quote Tim Keller, he puts it this way, give people the truth at the rate with which they can bear it. I think that's really helpful. Give people the truth at the rate with which they can bear it. Not everyone's gonna, gonna fall into tears when you tell them Jesus died for you. If you know at the right time, they will. Now some of you, you've tasted this worship and you've seen the value of God, but listen to Jesus. Be patient. Wait for God to work in their life. You put the gospel in front of them, don't try and force it on them. Or they'll turn on you. Tear you to pieces. Some of you have no clue what I'm talking about. Everything in this worship service feels a lot like my experience with Keith Green. If the band plays a wrong note, you're all upset. Communion probably seems empty. A really bad snack where there's a lot of people going through a conga line. My sermon, once the funny stories or the interesting points run out, it's just boring. For you, and say this. Keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep knocking and wait for God because he promises that if you ask, if you seek, if you knock, you will find, you will receive. And we're not just talking about stuff here. We're talking about the best stuff. Sacred meat, the pearl of great price. Who knows? 
You might even enjoy Keith Green someday.